Today on episode 15 of the California Slap Law Podcast, we're going to discuss the perils of overreaching in your anti-slap motions. That can really bite you even if you win. And I'll show you why you should never assume it's too late to bring an anti-slap motion and some strategies to keep in mind when you do bring an anti-slap motion late in the game. Cue the announcer guy. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the 15th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. My name is Aaron Morris. I'm a proud partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. I'm the Morris in Morris & Stone, in case you didn't figure that out. If you're new to the podcast, where have you been? This is the place we discuss all things slap. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, please feel free to call me at 714-954-0700. That's 714-954-0700. Or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Not the bottom law firm. That's right. You wouldn't want the bottom law firm. You want the top law firm. Morris at toplawfirm.com. Well, I've been busier than a one-armed paper hanger at Morrison Stone, so it's been a while since I've been able to put out a podcast, but that's okay because all the anti-slap motions we handle in the meantime give me more to talk about to you as various issues arise. You know, I've been thinking, okay, I've been doing this for more than 25 years. I've probably seen it all at this point, but it seems that every single motion brings its own unique facts and issues. So let me tell you about some of the anti-slap motions we've handled since the last time we talked. They presented some surprising issues. They all worked out fine, but they provide a couple of good object lessons and strategies. The first case is one I spoke about in episode 14, where an attorney who apparently didn't understand anti-slap law sued a bunch of people who had criticized her performance as an attorney. Now, she lost four, count them, four anti-slap motions brought against her in the case, and she's appealing all of those. Imagine what that's costing. Incredibly, There were three or four other defendants she had not yet managed to serve. She represented to the court that she could not find them. Now, after the drumming she took on the anti-slap motions, I assumed she would just dismiss those remaining defendants and move on. They didn't seem to be very significant players uh, based on the allegations of her complaint. But this last week, she applied to serve them all by publication. Now, I know nothing about these defendants, but I assume they all know about the case and just haven't answered because they've never been served. If they find out they've been served by publication, they will no doubt all respond with anti-slap motions. The attorney just keeps stepping in it. But, oh well, that's more work for me. I'll probably be hearing from those defendants. But here is this week's lesson from that case. It has to do with my motion for attorney's fees. Now, the attorney had alleged five causes of action against my client, and I included them all in the anti-slap motion, even though one of the claims was not a very good fit. I had some pretty good arguments why that fifth claim should be stricken, but it was a long ball. There's just no question about it. Well, the judge granted my motion on the other four causes of action, but not that one cause of action. So now comes the time for the motion for attorney's fees. As always, my fees were very reasonable. In fact, the attorney really didn't even challenge the time I'd spent on the motion. But she did argue that one-fifth of the fees should be disallowed for that one unsuccessful attempt to strike that one cause of action. And that's, that's not a totally stupid argument. This comes up often in fee applications, whether or not they are related to anti-slap motions. 
If you go to trial on five claims and only win on two, if there is a basis for attorney's fees, the defendant will argue that the fees must be reduced for the unsuccessful claims. And here's how the courts look at that. If the claims are inexorably intertwined, you'll get all of your fees because the reasoning is that you would have spent that time on the case even without the unsuccessful claims. But on an anti-slap motion, it's a little bit different. When you do an anti-slap motion where you have a different section in your brief for each cause of action, then conceptually it's pretty easy to say, well, one-fifth of the motion was spent on the unsuccessful claim, so you should at least reduce the total fees by that amount, Your Honor. Here that argument didn't work, and here's how I refuted the apportionment argument. I basically admitted that my anti-slap motion was a long ball as to that one claim, but I pointed out that only 20 lines of text in the entire motion were related to that one cause of action. Clearly, nominal time was spent on the, that claim, and the claims were all intertwined, so the court did not reduce the fee demand. But it's still an important issue to consider from either side of an anti-slap motion. Don't overreach on your anti-slap motions. If there are three causes of action against your client, and you pursue an iffy argument on one of those claims, you could lose one-third of your attorney's fees just because you decided to throw in an unsuccessful argument. On the other side, make the apportionment argument if the defendant is not successful on all claims. Hitting a home run and getting your client completely out of the case is a wonderful goal when you bring an anti-slap motion, but don't try to do it at the expense of making your client whole on the attorney's fees. One more thing relating to attorney fee motions before I move on. This issue should be dead and buried, but it has come up in two recent motions that I've pursued. I filed my motion for attorney's fees. I argue for my fees under the Lodestar method, setting forth my very reasonable time and setting forth my very reasonable hourly rate. And then opposing counsel files his or her opposition, arguing that there is insufficient proof that my client really paid the fees we are seeking to recover. What? The Lodestar method is based on an attorney's reasonable hourly rate times the number of hours worked. My arrangement with my client or whether my client has paid the fees is not relevant to the issue of attorney fees. I may have decided that I'm so outraged by the conduct of the plaintiff that I've agreed to pursue the anti-slap motion pro bono, but the, the plaintiff doesn't get the benefit of that. The case law is very clear that the plaintiff does not escape attorney's fees just because I'm not charging the client. Now, arguably, and I'm really kind of reaching here, but just to kind of come up with a concept that would justify this behavior... Um, the hourly rate you are charging your client could have some relevance to the reasonableness of your hourly rate. I'm frequently brought in as an expert to fight fee applications, and I see attorneys from big firms requesting $800 per hour. They justify that rate by providing fee surveys from various sources and by showing that they really do charge that rate to their clients who are stupid for paying those rates. Conceivably, I could ask for $800 per hour for one of my motions, arguing that I have far more experience than these big firm attorneys. But if a client has never paid me $800 per hour, then I'm not sure I can really claim that $800 per hour is my reasonable rate. That's the only reason I can see why my arrangement with my client might have some very narrow relevance. But beyond that very narrow possibility that I just brainstormed, my arrangement with my client and whether my client has paid the fees is not relevant to the Lodestar analysis. But I actually had a judge in Los Angeles that seemed like she was buying into this argument. What made it even more amazing was that in my declaration, I had stated my hourly rate and confirmed that my client was being charged that hourly rate. So I did respond to this issue of, well, did your client really pay that hourly rate? 
So in the case I'm referencing, I actually had set forth the fee arrangement, but the judge was asking me why I had not attached canceled checks to my fee application to prove that the client had really paid me the fees I was seeking. I got her turned around, but it just shows that you really need to explain the concept of a lodestar calculation so the motion doesn't slide sideways into this sort of crazy argument. Never give short shrift to the legal standard section of your brief. I, I see this often with new attorneys. They draft an opposition to, let's say, a motion for summary judgment, and they launch right into the evidence without ever setting forth the standards for a summary judgment motion. So they go to argue the motion, and the judge ends up weighing the evidence because no one ever told her she couldn't. Always make sure that the judge knows the rules of the game. In the case of a motion for attorney's fees, that includes explaining the standards for a lodestar calculation. That brings us to the next illustrative case, which, after delaying the matter, the anti-slap motion was finally argued and decided this past Thursday. For this next case we had, let's call my client Sherlock. Sherlock was a private investigator, appropriately enough, and because of some investigative work he did, a business got in a lot of trouble with the government and was sued by a customer. Eighteen months after the case was filed, the defendant named my client in a cross-complaint, arguing that my client's investigation had caused the defendant damages because he got in trouble with the government and got sued by his customer. This was a crazy case. Listen to these facts changed only slightly to protect the privacy of my client. Let's call the defendant uh, Dr. Dokes. Let's say Dr. Dokes was a plastic surgeon. But Dr. Dokes had a nice little side business doing Botox injections at Botox parties. But Dr. Dokes didn't want to take the time away from his practice to actually do the Botox parties, so he trained some women to run the parties and do the injections, which is illegal because they're not trained medical professionals. So our client was pretty mad because his wife had attended one of these Botox parties and had some serious complications. So he was out to prove that Dr. Dokes was doing this on a regular basis, violating the law by not having a trained professionals doing these injections. So one day he hears that a friend of his is thinking of hosting a Botox party. So he sees this as a perfect chance to catch Dr. Dokes. He tells his friend to set up the party with Dr. Dokes' office. The plan is to show up with officials from the medical board and catch Dr. Dokes' people in the act of making these illegal injections. But being government officials, they show up late and some of the guests have already received injections. When they do show up, they shut down the party and Dr. Dokes gets his license suspended. And he also gets sued by the women who received the bogus Botox injections. In the civil action, Dr. Dokes turns around and sues my client for conspiracy to defraud. He claims that my client was acting in concert with the party host and that it was the intention to set him up. Dr. Dokes claims that the lawsuit is a sham, therefore. The party host, in conspiracy with my client, booked the Botox party knowing Dr. Dokes would send unlicensed representatives to administer the Botox just so they could turn around and sue him. So that's the case. Well, let's run this through the anti-slap analysis. This case was kind of a no-brainer, but it is another fantastic example of the need for an anti-slap statute. Dr. Dokes was suing for being sued. He was basically saying, I would not have lost my license and I would not have been sued if you'd not set me up. Thus, he was suing for the report to the medical board and because of the lawsuit, which are both protected activities. The cross-complaint by Dr. Dokes was a clear slap. And as to the second prong, Dr. Dokes had no chance of prevailing. In that sense, Dr. Dokes was hoisted on his own petard. He said everything was done by my client in order to set up a sham lawsuit. 
Well then, that means everything was done in contemplation of litigation, and that means it all fell under the litigation privilege. Dr. Dokes could not prevail, no matter the motivation of my client, because the litigation privilege is absolute. While my client's former counsel didn't see the slap or decided for whatever reason not to pursue it, but the client had read some of my articles, and to him, it sure sounded like the cross-complaint was a slap, so he fired his attorney and hired me to bring the anti-slap motion. But my new client was well past the 60-day deadline for bringing an anti-slap motion. As I said, my client wasn't even named in the cross-complaint until 18 months into the action. Now, that's not his fault, so he would have been free to file an anti-slap motion even though it was late in the action. But former counsel had not pursued an anti-slap motion and my client was way past the 60-day deadline. So, what to do? I decided to bring a motion for leave to file a late anti-slap motion. Now, I find myself in this position surprisingly often. You've heard the old saying, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, since anti-slap motions are kind of my thing, everything looks like a slap. If you hand me a roast beef sandwich, I'll analyze it to see if it's a slap. So I often get hired to take over cases from other attorneys for whatever reason, and I often see a slap where prior counsel didn't. Now, let me impart some of my super secret strategies for dealing with these situations where you're past the 60 days to file an anti-slap motion. Let's just keep this between you and me, okay? Here's the problem that always arises when you have to seek permission to file a late anti-slap motion. Let's start with the wording of the statute. Section 425.16F provides, quote, The special motion may be filed within 60 days of the service of the complaint or in the court's discretion at any later time upon terms it deems proper, close quote. So the statute makes clear that it is in the court's discretion whether you can file an anti-slap motion past the 60 days. Well, let's think about that with a scenario outside the slap context. Let's say you file a complaint and the defendant responds with a demur. For whatever reason, let's assume for sake of this discussion that you file the opposition to the demur two days late. Your secretary's Aunt Tildy was in an accident and you didn't realize that she ran out of the office to be by Aunt Tildy's side without filing the opposition to the demur. Defendant then argues in his or her reply to your late opposition that your opposition should not be considered because it was late. Well, what is the rule on that? The court can, in its discretion, decide whether or not to consider your late opposition to the demur. You didn't ask for permission to file the late opposition. You just filed it and hoped for the best, right? You probably added a paragraph about poor Aunt Tildy, but you just filed the opposition late. By the same logic, if you come into an action like I did and you realize that the case screams for an anti-slap motion, can you just file the motion even if it's past the 60 days and hope that the judge considers it? Okay, that's enough of that. Well, in 2011, the California Court of Appeal for the Second District, in a case called, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher this name, Chitsazade versus Kramer and Caslow, answered that question. The Court of Appeal held that no formal leave to file a late anti-slap motion is required. The 60 days is not jurisdictional. You can just file it as late as you want, and the court can then decide whether or not to consider it. Interestingly, the court also held that the trial court does not abuse its discretion if it refuses to consider even a very meritorious motion, but, the court said, the court might want to consider the merits of the motion in determining whether to consider the late motion. So, 
Contrary to popular belief, you can file an anti-slap motion past the 60-day deadline without leave of the court. And knowing that gives you some added strategic options. I've never done it, but under the proper circumstances, if I was just just past the 60 days and knew the opposition would look foolish arguing prejudice, I'd go ahead and file the motion and explain carefully why the motion should be considered and why it's late. But generally, here is why I seek permission to file a late anti-slap motion. An anti-slap motion is usually a pretty big undertaking. I would not want to bill the client for all the time necessary to prepare a motion that the court may not even consider. And here's what I've found. If you can show strong merit to your anti-slap motion, the court has no reason to stand in your way. It may well get the case off the court's docket. I've actually, I don't actually recall ever being denied permission to file a late anti-slap motion. The only time you see courts denying the request to file an anti-slap motion is if they feel the purpose of an anti-slap motion has already been frustrated by the passage of time. And they'll usually point to the discovery. If there's already been a ton of discovery in the case uh, by the party bringing the anti-slap motion, and if that party has responded to a bunch of discovery, uh, the court will say, well, that's really kind of the primary point of an anti-slap motion is to prevent the action from being used to beat down those who criticize or those who access the courts. So uh, the the court in that case might say, yeah, there's really no reason to have an anti-slap motion this late in the game. But as I said, I don't ever actually recall being denied permission to file an anti-slap motion. That, That circumstance hasn't come up in any of my cases. But there are a couple of issues with asking for permission. It might be better to get the thing in front of the judge so he or she can see the merits. You know the old saying, better to beg forgiveness than to ask permission. If you got some crotchety judge and you ask permission, he might say no, and then you're stuck. It might have been better to just file it so he can see the merits. But the bigger issue to asking leave to file a late anti-slap motion is that you, you have to signal your intention to the plaintiff. I've touched on this in prior episodes, but let me lay the groundwork here. Some think the courteous thing to do before filing an anti-slap motion is to discuss it with opposing counsel and hopefully get an informal resolution. I contend that in most cases that won't serve the best interests of your client. Depending on where you are in the process, plaintiff's counsel might amend the complaint to try to cure the slap problems or dismiss the claim in order to refile it. Signaling your punch could deprive your client of a way of disposing of the action early in the litigation. But if you decide to seek leave to file a late anti-slap motion, that is just what you're going to be doing. You'll be jumping up and down in front of the plaintiff saying, I'm about to bring an anti-slap motion. You may want to do something about it. So here's what I do to minimize that effect a little bit. I've, I've seen attorneys bring noticed motions for leave to file a late anti-slap motion. That's overkill. The statute says nothing about a noticed motion. I just proceed by way of ex parte application asking for leave to file the late motion. In a perfect world, you would attach the proposed motion and then ask that it be deemed filed the moment the court grants your relief. In that way, opposing counsel would have about 24 hours to decide what to do. This, of course, assumes that the court can deem anything filed in these days of electronic filing. I've been in court a couple of times when that request is made and the judge and or clerk say no because the document has to be filed separately electronically uh, in order to show up on the docket. But in any event, if you attach the motion to your ex parte papers, that just brings us back to spending a ton of time preparing a motion that may not be accepted by the court. So here's what I do. I draft the points and authorities 
that I will ultimately use in the motion, or at least the highlights of the points and authorities, and I dump those into the ex-party application to explain the merits of the proposed motion. In the ex-party application, I ask for five or ten days to file the anti-slap motion if leave is granted. Now here comes the secret part that we're going to keep between you and me. If leave is granted, and it always has been, then I move heaven and earth, pulling an overnighter or two if necessary, to finish the motion and get it filed ASAP well in advance of the deadline I've requested. My reasoning is that if opposing counsel thinks I'm going to take 10 days to prepare and file my motion, he or she will probably take a few days to decide what to do. You know how attorneys are. They triage everything and nothing is done before the absolute deadline. If I can get the motion filed ASAP, I might win the race to the courthouse while opposing counsel is figuring out what to do. Just as an aside, though, I find that most attorneys, and it's really surprising to me, they just feel like they have to always stand by their position. They, they, they never back down. So here they filed a slap. I've brought an ex parte application asking for permission to file an anti-slap motion. You would think the attorney would take a really hard look at that complaint to determine whether it's a slap. And if so, dismiss the causes of action in question before I can bring my motion. But I've never had that happen. They always feel like they have to fight it, even though they're facing attorney's fees. Now, in the case I'm, I'm using as an example, the ex-party application I filed was especially gratifying. This judge hears ex-party applications at 8.30 in the morning, and the moving papers have to be filed by 3 p.m. the day before. Now, as required by statute, I have to give opposing counsel notice no later than 10 o'clock in the morning the day before the hearing. As required by local rule, I provided a declaration with the application stating that I'd timely notified opposing counsel before 10 o'clock in the morning, and he had stated that he intended to oppose my application for leave to file a late anti-slap motion. But right after I filed my motion, the court clerk called to say that the judge had granted my application and no appearance would be necessary the following day. The application was granted, giving me permission to file a late anti-slap motion without opposing counsel ever getting a chance to oppose. Now, first blush, you might think that violates due process or something, but now you know that I didn't really even have to ask permission, so the judge's ruling makes perfect sense. He was probably like, don't waste my time with an ex-party motion, just file it and I'll decide whether to consider it. While we're on the topic of filing late anti-slap motions, I might as well give you the two ends of the spectrum on the court's abuse of discretion. Again, if the court refuses to allow you to file a late anti-slap motion, or you just file it without asking the court and the court refuses to consider it, that will never be an abuse of discretion. And the court doesn't even have to give a reason. That was uh, the holding of Ducharme versus International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. As always, go to the show notes to see all the cases that I discuss. But on the other end of the spectrum, what if the court considers a really, really late anti-slap motion? Is that going to be considered an abuse of discretion? Well, at least one case is held that allowing a really, really late anti-slap motion can be an abuse of discretion. That was the case of Platypus Ware Inc. versus Goldberg, where the defendant waited two years to bring the anti-slap motion, and the only reason given for the delay was that the case had been focused on other issues. Platypus was a really strange case because the ruling was largely meaningless. After waiting two years... One of the defendants in the action asked for permission to file a late anti-slap motion. The trial court said, sure, why not? 
But then after letting defendant file the late anti-slap motion, the court denied it on, on the merits. The defendant appealed the denial of the anti-slap motion, so the Court of Appeal took a look at it and concluded that it was an abuse of discretion to let the defendant file the anti-slap motion so late. Did you follow all that? So the Court of Appeal reversed the trial court's order permitting the late anti-slap motion and vacated the trial court's ruling on the denial of the anti-slap motion. The Court of Appeal was like, you never should have been permitted to bring an anti-slap motion, so it's not good enough that your motion was denied. We hereby strike it from existence. Your motion was not even good enough to be denied. That brings up a quick war story. The ruling from Platypus reminds me of an appeal I just handled. The client comes to me having just suffered a $500,000 judgment on a breach of contract, and the court had also awarded about $50,000 in attorney's fees. Not a great week for this client. So I agreed to handle the appeal. I filed the briefs, argued the appeal, and by any rational measure, I won the appeal. The Court of Appeal agreed with my arguments and reversed the judgment as to the $500,000 in damages. Happy days for my client. But in the opinion, the court said that it was leaving undisturbed the award of $50,000 in attorney's fees, and it awarded costs to the opposition on appeal. Well, wait a second. I just got a $500,000 judgment reversed. How is my client not the prevailing party for purposes of awarding costs on that appeal? Also, this is a breach of contract action with attorney's fees for the prevailing party on the contract. Why are you leaving the attorney's fees untouched now that I've shown the $500,000 in damages were improper? So I did a motion for reconsideration to the Court of Appeal. Those never work, but how is the court going to justify leaving in the attorney fee award now that no damages were awarded against my client. In surprisingly short order, I get the ruling from the Court of Appeal on my motion for reconsideration. The ruling is, your motion for reconsideration is denied. Instead, the Court of Appeal says, we are amending our order to also reverse the award of attorney's fees. But your motion for reconsideration was not granted. Don't think for a second that it was asking us to reconsider our order. You make me sick. The Court of Appeal can do some very strange things. So here are the two takeaways from this week. First, don't overreach on your anti-slap motions because it could end up biting you when you ultimately seek your attorney fees. And never say never when it comes to filing a late anti-slap motion. In fact, you don't even have to ask pretty please. If the case calls for it, go ahead and file your motion late without seeking permission. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. I hope this won't come across as gloating, but I do enjoy the arguments opposing counsel comes up with when they're arguing against an anti-slap motion or a motion for attorney's fees that I've brought. In the first case I just talked about, as I said, opposing counsel really didn't challenge the time I'd taken on the motion, but here are a couple of the arguments she made in opposing my motion for attorney's fees. She didn't even properly count the number of causes of action she asserted against my client. I mentioned earlier the five causes of action, but she, in her opposition, claimed that there were only four causes of action and that I only won on three of them. In fact, there was five causes of action and we won on four. But in any event, she said that it was my obligation to apportion my own attorney's fees, and since I'd failed to do so, I should not be awarded any fees. But here's the one that cracked me up. 
To support my motion for attorney's fees, I explain why my fees are reasonable. That includes basically setting forth my resume and my declaration like most attorneys do. As part of that resume, I include that I publish articles on my California Slap Law blog and that I host this podcast. Now, anyone can create a blog and anyone can create a podcast. I understand that, but that's not the point. The fact that I have chosen to create a blog and a podcast on the very narrow topic of Slap Law shows that it is certainly one of my emphasized practice areas. It's like if you're an employment attorney listing that you belong to CELA, the California Employment Lawyers Association. Belonging to a particular association does not necessarily mean you possess any special expertise. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're entitled to a greater hourly rate. It just shows that you have an emphasis in that practice area. But opposing counsel put in her opposition to my motion for attorney's fees that the court should not consider my authorship of the blog and podcast because I had not provided any authenticated circulation reports. In other words, she said, without proof that people read my blog and listen to my podcast, the reference was meaningless in opposing counsel's mind and offered no support for my hourly rate. That was just classic. And then there was the anti-slap motion. Opposing counsel in these cases always seem to fall back on Flatley versus Morrow when they can't come up with any other argument, claiming that the conduct I claim was protected was in fact illegal. And I think I told the story here before that in one case, my client had was sued for something she'd said at a city council meeting. Well, speech at a city council meeting is, of course, absolutely privileged under Civil Code Section 47. But opposing counsel nonetheless argued that in in this particular case, the speech was illegal because in the city guidelines, it said that anyone addressing the city council should be respectful. Uh, He argued that my client uh, in defaming the city council member had not been respectful and therefore the conduct was illegal and under Flatley versus Morrow uh, was therefore not protected. You can imagine how far that argument got. And so it was in the case I was just talking about. Now, remember, in our case of Dr. Dokes, he was using unlicensed people to give Botox shots. Thus, he argued, my client's act of setting up the sting was illegal under the reasoning of Flatley versus Morrow because he encouraged his friend to hire Dr. Dokes, knowing Dr. Dokes would send unlicensed people. In other words... What you did is illegal because you knew I would break the law when you hired me. Yeah, that one didn't fly either. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.